Happy Easter! So we're glad to have you for Easter this morning, and we are beginning a brand new series of messages called The Start of Something Big, The Start of Something Big. Now, uh, probably a lot of you walked in here this morning, and you're thinking, okay, it's Easter Sunday, what in the world is a cabin, a house doing on the platform for Easter Sunday, that makes no sense. All right, come on, fess up. How many of you thought that? There's a few of you are like, this is Easter. What in the world is that stupid thing doing on the platform? Well, we're going to answer that question for you. We're going to let this be a touchstone for everything that we talk about, not only today, but for the next several weeks as we talk about the start of something big. Now, you guys can go ahead and put this up on the, on the screen for us. And uh, so, I just want you to know that this morning, we're going to start with a couple of very important parts of the start of something big. And that comes down to vision and then paying for the vision. Vision and funding. Vision and funding. And uh, you might realize, you might have had some experiences in your own life where you had an idea. And then you realize you got to pay for it, all right? So the start of something big always starts with a vision, a vision for something. And so with that in mind, let me, let me invite you to open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1, and hold your spot there. We're going to plow some ground this morning before we get there, but we are going to get there. And Ephesians chapter 1, we're going to read an extensive passage of Scripture from there. And as you do that and we get ready to sort of dive into the message, let me ask God to to bless his word. Father, we, we just give you praise for the celebration that is this day. God, thank you that there is no grave. (laughs) There is no grave that can hold you down. Lord, you conquered death, you conquered hell, you conquered the grave, you hold the keys to life. And God, because of that, we can gather today in absolute joy and celebration that we serve a risen Savior. So Lord, bless the reading of your word, bless the hearing of your word. God, may every person here today hear exactly what you would have them to hear so that the Holy Spirit may have his way in each and every life. And all God's people said, amen, amen. So I'm gonna tell you something that probably will not be a surprise to most of you, but I think pretty much every child, I I believe this, I don't have any research to show it, but I believe that pretty much every child grows up dreaming of being something bigger than they are or going something larger or different than where they are. And, and I think, you know, if you ask a lot of, a lot of uh, children, that usually falls into some very basic sort of patterns. I think a lot of children grow up wanting to, to be firemen. Any of you in here this morning wanted to grow up and be a fireman? Raise your hand. There's a few of you. Okay, cool. Now, listen, who wouldn't want to be a fireman? Who, want, who wouldn't want to drive the truck, right? It's one of the coolest things in the world. So you grow up to be a fireman so you can drive the truck. Or, or maybe a child grows up wanting to be a, a professional uh, football player. 
How cool is that? I mean, to run up and down the field, score a touchdown, spike the ball, man, and like, yes! And you do these weird dances in the end zone. It's so cool. Or, or maybe a child grows up wanting to be a princess. Or they, they grow up wanting to be a movie star. Or, or maybe they grow up wanting to be a superhero. And by the way, if, just word of advice, if you ever have a five-year-old and you put a cape on a five-year-old who is dreaming about being a superhero, two, two pieces of advice, get out of the way and have a bottle of super glue handy because <laughs> something's going down. All right, something is going to happen. And, and I find it interesting that there's, there's just something innate in the way that, that we're made that causes us to dream. Do you realize you don't have to teach a child to dream? Have you ever thought about that? You don't have to teach a child to dream. They just, they do it naturally. Have you ever thought, where does that come from? Why, why do children dream? Why, why don't animals dream? Well, I mean, of, of, not, I mean, like not shaking, the dog shaking, you know, the dog's dreaming, but the dog isn't dreaming about being something bigger or better. Why, why do children dream naturally without being taught to do it? I would say it's because that's the way that God, our creator, made us. God is the most creative, imaginative being in the universe. The Bible tells us that we're made in the image of God, which means that we share elements of his character. And one of those elements of his character is imagination, is, is the ability to dream of something that is not yet, but we would like to be. That's how God made us. We get it from our creator, dreaming is part of who we are. So if I ask you this morning, what's your dream? Most of you, probably, now there might be a few of you here this morning that you, you sort of quit dreaming. But I think most of you probably have a dream. And I would suggest that most dreams for us at the adult phase of life usually falls into a few basic categories. First one would be a dream vacation. How many of you this morning, maybe when I ask you what your dream, dream vacation is not the first thing that came to mind, but you have a dream vacation. Raise your hand. See, most of us in here have a dream vacation, a place where we're not, but we would like to be. Now, I bet some of you in here have a dream vacation of going to Australia, right? Some of you? Some of you probably have a dream vacation of going and visiting the great cities of Europe. Hey, some of you, it's not necessarily a place, it's, it's, a, it's a, an idea or a, a style. Some of you, your dream vacation, you really don't care where it is just as long as it's a beach somewhere. Raise your hand if that's you. It's like, I don't care where it is, it just has to be a beach. Yes. <laughs> So, some of you, your dream vacation is in the mountains. Some we're just a cabin in the mountains. It's quiet and there's, there's no, yeah, there's a few. I see you, Archie. And, and there's no internet. <laughs> you know, man, we might be stretching a little bit. But most of us have a dream vacation. Another category that a lot of us have a dream about is a dream car. Now... <laughs> My wife is bugging the bejeebers out of me. Pray for me. Just pray for me. Because somebody's got to spend the money and it ain't going to be me. All right. So, a new car. 
And, and now there's so many different varieties of cars that I won't, I won't go through the list, but I will tell you that when I was a teenager, my dream car was a Mercedes 450 SL convertible. If you, if you had a Mercedes 450 SL convertible as your dream car, raise your hand, I'm just curious. There's a couple of you. Man, I thought if I could ever get a Mercedes 450 SL convertible, my life will be complete. Man, I, dro I drooled over that car. Did I ever get one? No. So that's probably a higher priority than a pickup. I'm just saying. All right. <laughs> so, so there's lots of things that we dream about, but I would tell you that I think that there is one particular item at the adult phase of life that we probably dream about more than any other, and that's a home. I think almost everybody has in their mind their dream home. And you know what I think that is? Is because a dream home, first of all, it is a place for you, right? It's a place that at the end of a long, hard day, you get to go, and that's your place. That's where you get to be who you are, to be fully you. It's a place for you. But see, a home is not, it's not just a place for you. That's not what makes it such a powerful, great dream. It is not only for you, it's a, it's a place for your children, for your family, for your friends to gather. There is, there is nothing more exciting and heartwarming than to be in the place that you call home and people knock on the door and it's people that you love or your children visit from out of town and you fill that house with love and memories, and memories are priceless. We can go on vacation all we want to, but we can't stay there forever, but the memories are priceless, are they not? And in a place like a home, we build those memories, we compile them over and over and over again, and it's a place not only for today, it's a place for our future. And I think that a vision and a dream of a home is probably the single most powerful vision and dream that we have. And no one, no one ever truly outgrows the need to dream or to have a vision for something larger than yourself and where you are. Now, I think there's a couple of reasons for that. Because vision, vision drives you. Vision motivates you. It directs you, it limits you, it defines you. What do I mean by that? Because when you have vision, when there's something that you want and it, it is burning in your heart, vision drives you. It, it gives energy to your day. It gives fuel to keep you going. It motivates you because listen, there are gonna be days that you wake up and you don't want to get out of bed. Somebody say amen. amen. There's just those days. But when you have vision, vision says it doesn't matter how you feel, get out of bed because you've got a vision to chase. It, it directs you because you know that life is full of choices and options. They're all over the place, are they not? And when you have vision, 
Vision says, this is my direction. And in that way, vision limits you in a good way. You know why? Because it reduces your choices. It simplifies your choices. Because while this over here may be a good thing, it ain't my vision. While this over here, it may not be a bad thing, it ain't my vision. And because it ain't my vision, I'm not going to choose that. So it limits you in a helpful way and it defines you. It gives purpose. It gives a reason for what you do. There's a, there's a quote that I want to share with you this morning. Uh, Marsha Sintar, she said, Burn, uh, it is a burning desire. Vision is a burning desire to be or do something that gives us staying power. It's a reason to get up every morning to pick yourselves up and start in again after a disappointment. How many of you have ever had a disappointment that made you want to quit? Come on. See, a vision will may give you a reason to get up and keep going even when you've been disappointed and want to quit. Now, I want you to know this morning, there is incredible value in vision. There is value in dreaming big and, and dreaming beyond yourself, in, in dreaming bigger than yourself. But then there's the reality, right? And what do I mean by that? How many of you have ever had a really good idea? You thought to yourself, man, I would love to do this. I should do this. And then all of a sudden the thought hits you, how am I going to pay for this? If you know somebody that's had that moment, point to them right now and go, yep. <laughs> go ahead, point them out, point them out. They had a great idea, and all of a sudden, the reality was like, man, how in the world am I going to pay for this? It just, boom, it hits you like a ton of bricks, and that great idea was like, right out the window. Just like that pickup truck. (laughs) Because no matter... No matter how wonderful or awesome your vision is, you're still going to have to be able to figure out how to pay for it. You cannot pay or or accomplish a vision without paying for it. And in many cases, this is the dividing line between visions that are really nothing more than a wish and a vision that really is something that simply must be done. And when you have that kind of vision, you will find a way to pay for it. Some of you in here have, known, have had that exact experience. You know exactly what I'm talking about. When you have that vision that is so compelling, that is so overwhelming, it doesn't matter how high the price is. It doesn't matter how large the debt is. You will figure out how to pay for it because it simply must be done. You have to see that vision come to reality. Now, let me put a little meat on that bone for give you some idea of what I'm talking about. I'm going I'm to use the name of someone that I think everybody in here knows. I was just talking 
to, uh, to Randy and, uh, and Valerie while I go. So I'm, I'm going to mention a name that you guys probably know pretty well this morning. Walt Disney. Everybody know Walt Disney, right? Let me tell you a, a quick thumbnail of Walt Disney's life. So when Walt Disney got out of uh, a service for World War I, his first job was at a newspaper as a cartoonist. He got fired because he had a lack of imagination. Walt Disney, fired for lack of imagination, if you can believe that. So when he got fired from his job, he went out and he just started his own company, which was incredibly successful. It lasted all of one whole month. And then it went belly up. So then Walt Disney decided, well, I guess I better go back into the regular workforce. He, he found a job with an ad agency. And while he was at the ad agency, he worked on developing a technique for animation that nobody had ever done. And he tried to talk the ad agency that he was working for into using it. And they said, no, we're not interested. So Walt Disney quit. And he started another company. And this time he got some of his friends together and they began making uh, animated videos that lasted seven minutes long. It was a crazy awesome success for a little while and then it went bankrupt too. Off to a great start. Walt Disney is now 22 years old. He's already had two failed businesses under his belt. Gotta feel real good about where he's at in life, don't you think? What he realized that if he was ever going to see his vision come to fruition, if he was ever going to see his vision become success, he would have to uh, live like there was nothing else that mattered. He would have to be all in to see his vision become reality. So he packed a suitcase. He moved out to Hollywood. He hooked up with his brother and they began a studio which sounds really awesome and pretty impressive until you realize that the studio was just two people, him and his brother, in the garage of their uncle. Impressive studio. While they were doing that, he began to try to market an idea that he'd been working on about a live girl named Alice interacting with an animated wonderland. Everybody kept saying, nope, 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 not interested, not interested, not interested. And finally, one day, somebody bit. And because of that, it enabled him to begin working on building and developing another character that would become incredibly successful, and, and that was Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. How many of you have heard of Oswald the Lucky Rabbit? There's a few of you. Most of you have never heard of Oswald the Lucky Rabbit, even though Walt Disney is the one who created it. Let me tell you why. Because he spent about five years, Oswald was, was gaining a lot of popularity. And so after five years, Walt decided that he should ask for more, uh, more income as a result of the rabbit. And so as he began negotiating for a higher fee, he found out that the lady who bit on the Alice thing had secretly hired away almost all of his employees at his studio and stole the rights of Oswald the Lucky Rabbit out from under him. And she told him, you can either take less money or you can quit the studio. You know what he did? He quit the studio. 
So after he quit the studio, this is, this is a bad track record so far. But he decided, I'm not giving up. So he began to sketch another character, which became Mortimer the Mouse. And Mortimer's name was later changed to Mickey Mouse. And the character of Mickey Mouse took off like crazy. So much to the point of that over the course of six years, Walt got enough going that he had an, an idea that he really wanted to pursue with everything that he had. You might remember that he started a company one point in time that was seven-minute animated movies. Walt decided that he wanted to make a full-length movie that was completely animated a movie called Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And he began to shop that idea around and everybody told him, it's a terrible idea. It's a terrible idea. Don't do it. Don't do it. His brother told him no. His wife told him no. Everybody told him no. Nobody is going to watch a full-length animated movie. But he believed in it so much, he mortgaged the house. He took out multiple bank loans. He worked on it for three years in spite of everybody saying no, 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 no. And at the end of 1937, they finally released to the public a full-length animated movie, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, which went on to become the single largest movie of the entire year. And it made enough money to pay back all of his debt and more. Walt Disney was the embodiment of a vision that simply must come to reality no matter how high the price no matter what it cost no matter what he had to do he had to see it happen now I don't know what your vision is this morning I don't know on this Easter morning what what your vision maybe maybe it falls into one of those categories that we talked about earlier maybe it's something entirely different maybe you don't even bother to dream or have a vision anymore but I can tell you this morning, although I don't know what your vision is, I do know what God's vision is. And God's vision has always been to have a people, to have a family, to enjoy in a never-ending, joyful eternity. That is God's vision. Open up your Bible, Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to read several verses, starting in verse 3, reading through verse 10. They'll also be on the screen for you. I'm reading from the New King James Version. Begin Ephesians 1, chapter 3, or chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him, 
We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times that he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. Now let me point back to two specific verses from this passage of scripture, verse five and verse 10. Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. Adoption as sons and daughters. Do you see that? Do you see that? God is dreaming of a family. He has desired to have you and me and everyone who will to be willing to receive what he has done for us so that he can adopt us into his family and he can enjoy us forever. Verse 10 confirms that, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. He is gathering everybody together to be with him, a people, a family together forever. That's God's vision. That's always been God's vision. You think, well, how do you know that? Because the Bible comes right out of the gate. The very first words of the Bible pretty much agree with it. It sets this in motion. Many of you are familiar with the term. In the beginning, God, what's the next word? Created heaven and earth. God came out of the gate making heaven and earth. And as he made the earth, he began filling the earth with a variety of things. And the last thing that God made in his creation was his, was his crowning achievement of his creation. And he created man. He created Adam. And what we see in those early stages of scripture is God coming down to the earth that he created to fellowship with man, to fellowship with Adam first. And then after Eve was created, God came down to fellowship with Adam and Eve. God was building a family and he was building a house. That's a big house. Earth is a pretty big house, but God's a pretty big God, amen? God was building a really big house for a really big family. But then Adam and Eve messed it up. See, the Bible tells us that they sinned. Sin entered the house. Sin entered the world. Well, that's a problem. Because God is holy. And holy and sin cannot mix together. They're like oil and water. They just won't mix together. They won't stay together. They can rub up against each other, but they cannot mix. Well, now there's a problem because God is building a house for a family. See the family room? God was building a house for a family. And now it's messed up. 
But God simply would not give up on his vision. He was not willing to let that just be the end of it. He wasn't willing to just lay down in bed and say, well, that's too bad that didn't work out. The price to pay for and to cover sin is the blood of something that's pure. Now, in the Old Testament, under the law, now, some of you, you know, maybe, you know, church is not your regular thing, but you've probably at least seen uh, the Ten Commandments, that movie, right? Some of you probably saw that last night, one of the coolest movies ever made, even though it's old. I love it. The Ten Commandments is what we call the law. It's what the, what's referred to as the law in the Scripture. That's when God sort of codified everything that would needed to be done in order to stay in fellowship and relationship with him because sin and holiness do not mix. And so the writer of Hebrews in the New Testament reminded everybody of what happened in the Old Testament, that it was an animal sacrifice, that it always had to be something unspotted. And the writer of Hebrews in 9.22, he said this, in fact... Under the law, almost everything is purified by means of blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is neither release from sin and its guilt, nor the remission of the due and merited punishment for sin. So the writer of Hebrews say, well, we had this, this arrangement in the Old Testament. God was trying to build a home and build a family, but Adam and Eve messed it up. And so we cannot be in fellowship. We cannot be in relationship with a holy God when we're sinful people. And the only way to make that work is the sacrifice of an unspotted, perfect animal. Because without it, there's no remission. There's no removal of sin. But ultimately, no animal sacrifice would ever fully work. Why? Because our sin is a human condition, right? How in the world is an animal ever going to fully pay for our human condition? And so what was necessary was a perfect human, a perfect human that would be willing to sacrifice themselves for their blood to be shed for you, for me, so that we could be put back in relationship with, with God, so that God's vision could become reality. Well, there was only one not so little problem. Romans chapter three, verses 10 through 12. We read this, as it is written, there's none righteous, no not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable because there is none who does good. No, not one. Paul in Romans said, you know what? We'll never get there because there are none of us that are perfect. I don't care how good you are. I don't care how many good things you try to do. I don't care how great the greatest person ever was. It ain't good enough. So God 
could never expect any of us to make the sacrifice to put his vision back into place. He couldn't ask us to make the payment. We can't. There was only one way, only one way to pay the price that would have to be paid. And that was his son, Jesus Christ, who was both fully God and fully man. The death of Jesus Christ was how God funded his vision. And Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah was looking forward to the cross and to Jesus and the sacrifice of Jesus. And in chapter 53, verse six, he said, all we like sheep, we've gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You know what he's saying? Every one of us left to ourselves, we will spend an eternity separated from God. We will not be in his family. We will not share the living room space with God. But when Jesus paid that price for God's vision, the writer of Isaiah said that God was willing to lay the price of our sin onto his only son, Jesus. That's the point of Easter. That's what Easter is all about. See, God's plan is to build a family, and that means that he wants to invite each and every one of you this morning into a loving, saving, life-giving relationship with him. Not only for today, but forever. And when I think I think of Easter when I think of what of what God did of what Jesus did I don't know about you but I am blown away I'm blown away by his commitment to his vision and I'm blown away by his commitment to us that he values us enough that he was willing to pay any price.